Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we encode weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Mark Changizi completes his talk on the evolution of emotional expression. But first up, here's one woman's major contribution to computing. Computers assemble. Kathleen Booth wrote the world's first assembly programming language that allowed computers to be controlled at the level above machine code's ones and zeros. She also wrote the assembler that converted the instructions into ones and zeros. Every computer and modern electronic device depends on this work. She also did pioneering work on neural networks and computer translation between natural languages. There were reports of her death this week at 100 on Twitter, based on an entry in Wikipedia that has since been deleted for being unreferenced and unsubstantiated. It's still being discussed on Reddit. So as best I can find after extensive searches online, Kathleen Booth is still going strong at 100. However, her contribution to modern life is so enormous, her life deserves to be celebrated. In the 1940s, general-purpose computers were programmed for each new task by being rewired. ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, was the first programmable general-purpose digital computer, completed in 1945. Computers like ENIAC didn't have internal storage for code. Programming ENIAC involved manipulating thousands of switches and cables. The positions of those switches and cables were the program. Being able to write a program in code and have the computer store and translate that code into binary instructions for the computer to load into its working memory was a huge improvement. Assembly language sought to apply mnemonic memory aids in the form of words to machine code instructions so you could learn the instructions in a way that you could understand and remember so you could write software rather than just dealing in ones and zeros and rewiring the hardware. Kathleen Booth was born Kathleen Britton in August 1922 in Stourbridge, Worcestershire, England. She earned a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the University of London and a PhD in Applied Mathematics in 1950. There were no computing degrees back then. In 1946 she started work as a research assistant at Birkbeck College, University of London, later becoming a research fellow and lecturer. She worked simultaneously as a research scientist at the British Rayon Research Association because they sponsored the work. Andrew Booth was a physicist who worked on X-ray crystallography research at the University of Birmingham and started building computing machines to make the calculations easier. He spent a short time as a research physicist at the British Rayon Research Association where he began work on the ARC, 
the automatic relay calculator or computer, which used paper tape for input and was really a special purpose computer during Fourier calculations on X-rays scattered from crystals. It was an electromechanical computer using mechanical switches operated by electromagnets. In 1946, he also took up a post at Birkbeck College, University of London. Andrew continued work on the ARC, but as there was no room at the college, and since the British Rayon Research Association was funding it, the work was done at their facilities, where Kathleen and Andrew met. Kathleen and another research assistant, Xenia Sweeting, helped Andrew continue building the automatic relay computer, and in fact, did most of the construction. In 1947, through funding from the Rockefeller Foundation and the British Rayon Research Association, Kathleen and Andrew took a six-month tour of the US with John von Neumann in Princeton, New Jersey, at the Institute for Advanced Study. John von Neumann is another pioneer of computing, who, among his many accomplishments, invented the idea of stored program computers, where the program is stored within the computer and then copied to its working memory registers. He invented software. This led Kathleen and Andrew to design Automatic Relay Computer 2, which had stored programming on a rotating magnetic drum. Kathleen wrote and published two reports on how to implement memory in a von Neumann-style computer titled General Considerations in the Design of an All-Purpose Electronic Digital Computer and Coding for ARC, which first describes her assembly programming language for the ARC. The ARC and ARC2 were succeeded by their first fully electronic computer that used vacuum tubes instead of magnetic relay switches the Simple Electronic Computer, SEC, and APEC, the All-Purpose Electronic Rayon Computer. In 1947, in order to get funding from Rockefeller, the Booths added working on natural language processing to their list of projects. The goal was to achieve accurate technical translation of languages, such as from English to French. Kathleen married Andrew in 1950. In their book, Automatic Digital Calculators, they outlined some of the algorithms which they and colleagues had worked on up to 1965, starting out with word substitutions and processing of stems and word endings. While they did a lot of work on natural language processing at Birkbeck College with their students, there's also a record of them working on English-French translations for the National Research Council Canada between 1965 and 1972. In 1957, Kathleen co-founded the School of Computer Science and Information Systems at Birkbeck College, and in 1958 published a book on programming, The Apex C, which was one of the earliest books on programming and highly unusual in having a woman author. The Birkbeck College Annual Report of 1958-59 says that Kathleen wrote a program to simulate a neural network investigating ways in which animals recognise patterns and that the following year's report mentions her work on a neural network for character recognition. This was only four years after the first ever running of a neural network on a computer. In 1962, Kathleen moved to Canada, where she became a research fellow, lecturer and associate professor, first at the University of Saskatchewan, and then professor of mathematics at Lakehead University. She retired from Lakehead in 1978, 
but an article search shows a paper by her and her son, Dr. Ian J.M. Booth, titled Using Neural Nets to Identify Marine Mammals, dated 1993, when she would have been 71. Basically, it was an artificial neural network that was created to recognise the calls of individual seals and performed well with the animals in the test set. This was based at least partially on her existing research from the late 50s and 60s on the same subject. As of 2019, Kathleen Booth was happily living in retirement at 97. If you're still going, Kathleen, happy 100th birthday, and thank you for all your brilliant innovations. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr. Mark Changizi is a cognitive scientist and theorist. Mark invented glasses that allowed people with red-green blindness to see more colours and for medical staff to more easily find veins. He's written his latest book, Expressly Human, with his colleague Tim Barber, about research into the evolution of emotional expression. I spoke with Mark over a dodgy Zoom call and continued the conversation by asking Mark, and so you've worked out quite a bit of the negotiation process, all of the different sorts of emotions that you need to both express and understand to be able to negotiate something like you mentioned buying a house, how serious you are about your offer and how that sort of negotiation takes place. Yeah. So, I I mean, whether we're arguing over a zucchini bread, but, or, or arguing over a house, I think most of us already understand the space of negotiation or the kinds of signals that we need to negotiate. But for the most part, no one's really written this down or fully thought it out, but the basic things that you need to signal negotiation are two dimensions, not four dimensions. And there's another two dimensions that make it four dimensions that are are sort of secondary, but crucial. But let's set aside those. These first two dimensions are something you really already know about. We already hinted at them in some sense that I can say that I'm really confident or I'm really humble, but, or I can also say that Ian, you're really confident, in which case I'm being respectful because I said you're con. Or I could say, Ian, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, in which case I'm being disdainful. And that's one you can negotiate in those terms too. I go, you, like concerning your house, I'm, I'm an appraiser. Ian, did you know I'm an appraiser for God's sake? So I know how much that house has worked. So I'm showing a lot of pride. Or I could say, actually, I don't really know that neighborhood very well. I can show, in which case I'm suggesting that maybe I should pay more because I don't really know very much. Whereas if I showed pride, I'd be saying, well, look, I should get a better price for me. And I could do the same thing by saying, Ian, you don't know what you're talking about. I showed disdain saying that the price should definitely be lower because you don't know what you're talking about. Or I could say, actually, you, know, you, you typically are, you typically say the right thing. I, I respect your opinion, in which case I may then pay more if I'm the buyer. But um, that's uh, two dimensions. But it's a, a slightly easier way to start. Those are two dimensions that are kind of rotated by 45 degrees, which I won't try to explain why that is the case. Here's an easier way to think about it, the two dimensions of negotiation. And is the first obvious way, thing, the dimension that matters when you're buying anything or negotiating anything, and, and again, I'm saying negotiation in a very asset 
uh, negotiation way, which sounds boring, but no, negotiation is everything. Even just right now, I'm negotiating with Ian. Ian is letting me talk and I'm kind of testing the water. Am I allowed to still talk or, is it, or am I going too far? And he kind of wants me to stop. And these are in, in normal conversations happens all the time. I'd be reading his eyes but right now. We can't see each other. So I'm kind of waiting to see whether he's going to stop because he'd like another. We're doing these things all the time in all aspects of our life. And so, but so don't think that because this has to do with a, buying a house, that it's all this very, you know, concrete stuff. But anyway, it, it's nice to keep it concrete just for a second so that you can see that you get the two dimensions that matter in all kinds of negotiation. The first is just, I want that your house for lower for me. And you're like, no, you'd like it to be a higher price. We're just volleying back and forth about how much we should get in terms of whatever it is that we're arguing for. You want more for your house. I would like to pay less for your house. That's what we would say is the horizontal axis. But there is a second dimension that most of us know, all of us know, but we don't consciously recognize. And that's when, so again, I'm buying, trying to buy Ian's house and I'm not talking to Ian, I'm talking to my realtor. And I say to my realtor, okay, now we've already gone back and forth a few times and Ian listed it for 120 and we've gotten him down to 115, let's say, but I still want to buy for 98. So I say, look, realtor, go tell his, Ian's realtor that I would, I'd be, 98,000, we're, we're willing to go up as far as 98,000. And this is our final offer, right? Now you can feel it. What have I just done? I've made things very serious. I've put reputation at stake in some sense. I'm like, um, I'm worried. We're all emotional in a situation like this. I want a better price and I'm not kidding around, right? I could instead have said, I want it for 98,000. That is a much better price than what Ian wants. And, you know, I'm totally happy. And if you would like make a counter, because I'm not really sure, right? That would be me asking for a better price, but being casual about it rather than serious. There's a second dimension, which is a serious casual dimension. And if it gets more serious, when I make it more serious, now when Ian replies, he's thinking, oh crap, I've got to be careful because if I make, if I don't like bend to Mark, Mark is implicitly threatening to walk, to fight, to call that is in social animals terms. The whole point of doing these negotiations, these signals is to avoid having to fight like all the non-social animals always had to do. But Mark looks like he's ready to fight because he just said, and this is my final offer. And so Ian's thinking, okay, whatever I do now, it turns out that there's, it's a more of a poker game now, more reputation. I've in some sense set the standards of how much you have to bet when he makes a counter offer higher. So it becomes more dramatic, more reputation gets put on the line. And, uh, and so it, it, there's a second dimension, which is how poker-like in some sense it is. So you have these two dimensions that you need to be able to negotiate. And those are the only things that you need to negotiate. And so that's how you get to two dimensions, which is sort of halfway there uh, in terms of understanding the emotional expressions. And it seems that sometimes we respect when there's been a deception in the negotiations, we admire the, the skill. And there's other times we think it's an unacceptable deception that it's too far. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm trying to think if we ever, if someone, so a typical deception would be that you claim something much stronger than you actually have evidence for, and you might be perfectly aware that you're doing that. And then I back down and I, I fold. I say, okay, you're right. Maybe you should get more of the zucchini bread in because mom does love you more. I, at least I pretend to believe that. And then later I found out that that's wrong. So I'm trying to think of the circumstances in which, which I would think that was pretty cagey and cute versus being really angry at you. Um, 
they're subtle. I can imagine certainly if you were younger, the younger brother, I might find that kind of cute. But if you were the older brother, I'm not sure, sure I would. But I had to think about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it's a hard one. And you also introduced some other ideas, like the idea that as well as you betting in a negotiation, that there's unbets. That's right. So that one thing you can't do in poker, and we would love to do, is to be able to, you know, you've got two kings and you're hoping for a third king. And so you push in a whole lot of chips and then someone else pushes chips and you're like, and then you get your new card and, and it's a two or something like this. And so you, what you'd like to be able to do is say, all right, never mind. I, I, you know, I think you're right after all and unbet a bunch of chips and hope that they'll, you can lower the drama of the situation. It just is not, happens to not be allowed in poker. But in normal circumstances, we do, a, we, we say my bad, at least in sort of English, American English, we say my bad, or I was wrong. You know, you're admitting it and kind of trying to, and then it, you're basically saying you're right and I was wrong. And so you're trying to save some of the chips, reputation chips that you bet by virtue of doing so. Yes. And it's interesting. You can't do that in poker. Yeah. So, so poker's it's in some sense, it's not only is it just one dimension because you can only bet. And in, in, in our case, we can, I can make two different kinds of bets. I can push in reputations on the basis of me saying how great I am, or I can push in reputation chips because I'm saying how stupid or you know low you are disdainful. And I can also do the opposite of both of those. I can say that, oh, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. I can be humble or I can say, actually, uh, Ian, you did great. You know, and I can be respectful. Those are two different ways of unbetting. They're both conciliatory. In poker, I can only be aggressive. I can only say I'm confident, but I can't really make a claim that I'm confident versus you're. I'm, I can only basically say I'm more confident than you. There's really no way to tell whether I'm saying that my hand is so great with my bet or your hand is so crappy. Is, you know, my, there's no way to do that. And I can't ever do the opposite of it. So in some sense, it's only one dimension and it's only half a dimension. Whereas real life poker, the poker game of life that we're all playing all the time when we emotionally express and even when we type with text and language, um, because we're playing the same kinds of games even before, us, um, it's fully two dimensional, uh, uh, not a half dimension like for poker. One of the interesting things at the beginning of the book was the idea that a lot of the emotions are actually from the need to express for the negotiation and to be ready to back that up rather than just something we felt and then found a way to express. Right. So I, I think another way to say that is that, and even another way to back up to this, an unfortunate term that we have, and it goes all the way back to Darwin and before Darwin, is that we call these signals that we use to negotiate, negotiation writ large, so these all kinds of uh, compromises that animals engage, we use, the term that we use is emotional expressions, you know, quote unquote, emotional expressions. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, we've had emotions for hundreds of millions of years, all of these animals that were not social animals, filled with emotions, teeming with emotions, all of these inner feelings and thoughts and things like this, none of it was expressed, right? It was all on the inside. And so when you say emotional expressions, well, it sounds a heck of a lot like you're trying to say that the animal's wanting to let you know its emotions. It's like, hey, Ian, here's my emotions. I want to show you them. And sometimes that's the kind of implicit thought, or sometimes like the emotions can't help but leak out. So like, there's always this idea that emotional expressions is all about just seeing what's inside. And I think that's completely the wrong idea. And it, it turns out there's a truth to it. There's a reason why it's still, we still feel like there's something right about the term, but it's the wrong way of thinking about it. We didn't evolve to suddenly 
want to show other people our emotions on the inside. That's That would be missing the point. The point of having emotional expressions and the point of having these signals is to come up with, is to have a means by which animals could have a conversation, come to some kind of compromise and not have to kick each other in the teeth and use, you know, tooth and claw. They could actually have their wills push up against each other, test each other's wills without having to actually use fists and then come to a, an agreement. And they could do that a lot. And by virtue of doing that, they over time would avoid all of the nasty kinds of fights, which either bring great variability because sometimes I get nothing and sometimes I get all of it or bring a lot of side effects of the costs of engaging in a fight. Sometimes there might be costs, sometimes there might not be a cost. Often there's deep costs, uh, but even if there's no costs, you don't want your life to be highly variable, like getting nothing and getting everything. You'd like to be kind of, when you have interactions, you're getting a, some kind of average in the middle. It just tends to smooth things over. It makes life safer. So the term emotional expressions and why it's not just about expressing your emotions, right? And that's the problem with the term. So we, yeah, we all have these internal emotions. The signals that we have are just for having these conversations so that we can, without language, because we didn't have language up until 100,000 years ago, and just for humans, so that we could actually carry out these kinds of conversations, come up with a compromise without having to fight about it. Now, the reason that our negotiation signals are, are wrapped up in emotions, that is, why do emotions have anything to do? why should they be emotional at all? Like, why do we feel like there's something emotional about our emotional expressions? And that's because if I signal to you that I'm, I, if I signal that I know what I'm talking about and you don't know anything, I'm being aggressive, I'm doing an aggressive emotion. Well, I'm also telling you that I'm willing to go to mom and fight about this. In this case, it wouldn't be a physical fight. It would be you know, like I'm ready to go to mom and that's what the fight would be in terms of the judge that figures out who was right. If I am showing you an aggressive emotional expression, I'm implicitly saying I'm ready totally to fight about this because I'm right. And if we went to fight about this, I'd, you'd, you'd see that I'm right. So we're letting them know that I have on the inside an, an, an emotion that's readying me to go do this thing that I'm claiming would you know that I'm claiming that I should just you should just agree to right now now of course I could just be lying I could say I'm totally like suppose it's a fight just to make it more fun I totally would beat you in the wrestling and so I'm, I'm looking like ready like angry face something that would I I might want to be emotionally ready to fight like a little bit heart pumping um, but maybe I'm just bluffing and I'm just not actually ready to fight at all I just am maybe trying to look a little bit like I'm ready to fight but I'm not even one percent but I nevertheless signal that and uh, you know, that happens all the time. We may be doing a lots of signals where we don't really believe that. And we might want to look like we really believe it in the sense that we're really willing to follow through. But these things are disassociated. They're not always going together. But the reason they're associated is because at any time, Ian might say, forget, it. I'm not I'm not negotiating with you anymore. We're going to go figure out what's right. We, let's wrestle or let's go ask mom. In which case, when we make these expressions, they correlate or associate with the emotion that you should be on have that you should have on the inside if we were to have to fight about it then that's why these expressions are associated with the emotions that they are one of the nice things about this book look it was a decade in the making and one of the beauties of it from my point of view, from a theorist point of view from a scientific point of view as a theorist it's very hard to come to a gorgeous theory that allows you to go from from first principles, deriving a space of emotional expressions and then having a mapping to the space of 
things that we have to do in a negotiation. So here's all the things that we have to be able to say in a negotiation. Here's the space. You can just work out. Here's what you got to say. You got to have all these things that you got to say. And then you can show here's exactly the emotional expressions that we have and how, how it maps back and forth. So it gives you a two-way mapping, like a uh, what's that old stone from, you know, they, that they decode. You know, oh, the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, the Rosetta Stone. It's like a Rosetta Stone. The book is like a Rosetta Stone that allows you to map back and forth between, for any emotional expression, what does it mean in negotiation? Congratulations on an amazing bit of work there. It's really interesting and it's very convincing. And thank you so much for your time. It was great being here. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Ian. That was Mark Changizi, author of The Vision Revolution Harnessed, and most recently, Expressly Human, talking about the evolution of emotional expression and negotiation before language. I highly recommend reading his books. Before I go this week a little housekeeping, Google has killed the last of the FeedBurner services I was using. If you're a mailing list subscriber, you may get an email asking you to confirm if you want to continue getting email notifications when a new Diffusion episode comes out from follow.it. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in Northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.